I imagine at this point, as we uh, continue in our series on Philippians, and we only have a, a couple more weeks, including this week, left in the series, uh, I'm imagining at this point uh, that if the Apostle Paul was given a chance to retitle uh, the book of Philippians, if he was given a chance to put a headline on top of that and say, now here's, here's the title of this book uh, that I'm sending to you, this title of this letter, uh, let's put it up there, let's underline it, I, I imagine he might draw on the title of this sermon as the title of Philippians. Getting our mind right is what he might, might call this book. And certainly we'll see that in uh, this morning's text. We've already heard that in the words here, but we'll hear it even more as we ponder these words together. And of course, in our day, uh, we could probably use getting our minds right. You think about uh, things we hear about in the news. Uh, we have folks who are targeting political figures and their families, and I don't just mean targeting them within some sort of, uh, we want to argue, uh, some sort of rhetorical uh, type target, but literally going to the homes of people in our society and targeting them for violence. Uh, that violent words are turning into violent actions. And we see that on both sides of the divide. Uh, we've seen folks be targeted that way. Or even our celebrity culture, which some of the most well-known people in the nation and certainly maybe even in parts around this world uh, who, are, who have gone to prolific amounts of wealth uh, have said very abusive things about entire ethnicities and groups of people. And that's just the last week in the news cycle that these things have happened and they seem to continue to happen over and over and I'm anticipating that the coming week is going to be a wild, wild week knowing that our elections are coming up very soon. I think as we gather here this morning in worship, as we come into this place and we gather around God's word, it's our desire, it's our hope, and I think you share that hope with me, and I hope you do, is that we might be people who do it right, who live rightly, who have a mind that's in the right place. But what does that look like? mentioned earlier that today's uh, celebration of Reformation Sunday with the insert uh, is looking at the 40th anniversary of the Belhar Confession. And if you're unfamiliar with this confession, it's an outline of the teaching of Scripture like any confession would be. It reflects a particular time and place in history, uh, but like the confessions, as we've gathered them together uh, for our own instruction and for our own understanding, they still serve to guide us in our own contemporary context today. They help us unpack uh, the themes of Scripture, the, the doctrines of the church. Well, in section 2 of Belhar, we read about the church. And when we read about it, we hear about who's in its membership, uh, how that membership relates to one another, and how the church itself relates to the world. And there, the Belhar Confession confesses this. It says, We believe that this unity of the people of God must be manifested and be active in a variety of ways, in that we love one another, that we experience practice and pursue community with one another, that we are obligated to give ourselves willingly and joyfully to be a benefit and blessing to one another, that we share one faith, have one calling, are of one soul, and of one mind. And it goes on from there. That last part sounds a bit familiar. It sounds like something that I've read before. It sounds like something that I've heard because it sounds like it comes right out of the book of Philippians. And of course it does. The confession itself 
includes a series of reference notes to the scriptures. And at this point, it shows Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 being referenced. If you recall that particular text earlier in our series, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And that's a good word because we don't often heed it. Of course, in the church, conflict oftentimes emerges just as it does in society. Division comes into play and it sometimes reigns, as we also see in our culture. And when it does, conflict is no joke. Division is not something to be laughed at or to be winked at or smiled at, as the very conflict itself we know can sever personal relationships. We know that conflict fractures families. We know that it ends marriages and it destroys communities. Not just on the school play yard as children, but through our entire lives. Conflict itself can destroy the fabrics of who we are and how we relate to one another. And so our text this morning begins with a conflict between two people. I love when folks say, you know what? The church would be better if we could go back to be like the earliest church. If only we could go back to the first century and live like that. And they oftentimes will go to Acts chapter 2 and talk about how everybody shared everything and had everything in common. Um, and they'll say, see this example? But then you go to Philippians, and what do you see? Two people fighting over something. Can't we just go back to that? We don't have to. We're already there. But here's the situation. Euodia and Synecdoche are two people who are in the church. They're known in the church. Paul knows them. They're beloved people. But they're here embroiled in some kind of conflict. And from the little that our text offers to us, uh, we don't quite know what the beef is about. right? We don't know what it is. But it's significant because Paul's writing about it and he wants to take action here. And we know that a conflict like this has to be acted on because it doesn't only have problems for the two involved, but also can divide the church itself, divide that community. So much so... That we recognize in verse 3 that here, Apostle Paul will write, we need a call for mediation. We need to do something to bring these people back together. There's been lots of a conjecture here about who the mediator that Paul is called upon. If you want to geek out on that, who this loyal companion is, come talk to me later. There is a lot of folks who've been mentioned, including Paul's wife. Do we know anything about Paul's wife? You've read the Bible? No. But ultimately, whatever the beef is and whoever the mediator is, that stuff's been lost to history. But we do know it was a significant issue here. But what hasn't been lost here is Paul's response. Remember the book of Philippians is this book where it's, it's modeling for us and saying to have the mind of Christ and to take on the very actions or the way of doing life that Jesus took on, that Jesus adopted, this humility in community as we exist with one another and here Paul is, is stepping forward and stepping into a conflict with two people that he loves and cares for. And so what he does is he steps into it in the way that I imagine Jesus would step into the midst of those, that situation. We see that even though there's a conflict here, Paul doesn't take up sides. He doesn't say, oh, you're right and you're wrong. He doesn't blast them. He doesn't destroy them. But rather he honors their humanity. And we see that in the very way the language is structured. You note in verse 2 how it's worded. It says, I urge Iodia and I urge Synecdoche. It says urge twice there. That's repetition that exists there in the text. And it exists in the Greek text as well. 
what Paul has done there is he's now dealing with these two different people who are in conflict. He's working with each one individually. And that's what I mean by honoring their humanity. He's not putting one over the other. He's not smoothing it out and saying, oh, it's nothing. But he's urging each person, saying, I'm writing to each one. I'm urging each one to bring them together in this conversation. And so as he addresses them, we see here there's a tone of respect. Actually, commentator G. Walter Hansen observes this about the language. In writing, it conveys an appeal, a request, an encouragement, and implies treating someone in an inviting and congenial manner. This is approaching the matter with a relationship in mind. Not just one that existed before the conflict, but also one that anticipates having a relationship in the conflict and after the conflict as well. That's a different way of approaching the situation. That's a godly way of approaching it. But Paul is looking at and recognizing that there's great value in these people. This friendship is real. And so he directly addresses the issue. He does it with great respect and love for the other. We don't always get this one right, though. I don't get this one right. I've oftentimes in life not led this way with the relationship, the future relationship in mind. I've fallen in that trap where it's, yes, we've had a relationship and conflict existed, and then I stopped looking to the future. And my present actions reflected that. And I wonder how many people here this morning have done the same. It's not a natural thing for us. But Paul's calling us to something different. Philippians calls us to a different kind of life, a life that takes on the mind of Christ. I think it's worth pausing here in knowing that the elections that are coming up, it's good to keep in mind the mind of Christ <laughs> and how we address relationships. We know in our world that social media and the, not social media by itself, but the way that we use social media sometimes can lend itself to this type of conflicts, particularly around elections. God have mercy on us in the coming weeks. Of course, the writer's aim here in all of this, particularly with these two gospel partners, is to be in the same mind as the Lord. We see that in the second part of verse 2. This same mind has come up in Philippians before, and a concise definition or a picture of what that might entail is this, we hear in chapter 2, verse 2. Of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. This is a community of persons pursuing and pulling toward one goal, the same goal. And together, that, that's being shaped, or at least it's shaping, our expressed and shared values. It's of the same opinion, of thinking the same thing about a particular target. Now, we're not talking about robots here, all right? That would be silly. We're not talking about clones here either. That's not the picture here. But rather, what we have here is a community of people who together live and share a mission, who share an aim, the aim of being followers of Jesus Christ. We come with all kinds of different expressions as we come into this room, as we come to this place, but we all come with the same goal, to follow Jesus Christ. For some of us, that journey looks different than others, and that's okay. That's okay. We learn from each other. We grow from each other. And the way you do it might help me do it better. And we walk with that humility. So if conflict is out, we're not to live in conflict like these two. How then should we live? What should our lives look like? Well, I think I might have shared this story before, but 
a bunch of years ago, I worked for a camp. If you haven't noticed, I have a lot of stories from the time I worked in camps. <laughs> it was a very eventful time in my life. The first camp I worked at, I was a camp counselor. And uh, um, we got through the, most of the summer, and they ended up uh, letting the uh, maintenance guy go. They fired him. Um, I don't even remember what the reason was they fired him, but it was a difficult time for the staff there at the, the camp. And it was an even more difficult time because they needed a maintenance guy to step up and help with some of the landscaping. And so we're getting ready to head into another week of family camp. And I volunteered. It was a week before high school camp. I said, you know what? Um, I'm not really serving as a counselor right now during family camp. I'm just doing odds and ends. I'd be happy to serve in the, the maintenance area, the landscaping. Uh, put me to work. They said, great. We'll have you do that for a week. And so I volunteered. And I was, I was at work on Monday morning doing that work. Well, little did I know that week the fire inspector was going to come. <laughs> and uh, the camp was woefully underprepared for that visit. In fact, there was a lot of missing or non-working smoke detectors across this long piece of property. So it was my job. I had a supervisor who set me out and said, Jimmy, I want you to go and I want you to replace and test all the smoke detectors across this camp. Now, this is multiple lodges across this place. And so I spent the better part of two days going from door to door checking smoke detectors. When I came to one of the lodges, I realized the smoke detector was one I could not reach by even staying on the highest bunk. It was way, way up high, and so I requested that there would be a ladder that I could use so I could reach the smoke detector. Now, strangely, I should add here, my supervisor guarded the equipment that I might have needed in all its forms. You need a shovel, you have to go through a process. <laughs> Fill out some paperwork. <laughs> you need this, another process. So when I contacted him, who I rarely saw during the entire week I was there, uh, I wasn't surprised by the response I got. It took a couple hours. He finally showed up. He walked into the room. He looked at me. He looked at the smoke detector. And he says to me, the first rule in any project is accessibility. And then he left. <laughs> Not helpful. <laughs> Not helpful at all. God doesn't operate that way. That's not how God operates. God operates in something completely different. Instead of inactivity in Jesus Christ, God has taken decisive action on our behalf, our rescue. That we've been reconciled to God. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, a way has been made for us to be reconciled to one another. So we might choose to live in conflict we might choose to draw up sides. We might choose to put on blue wool uniforms and the other side put on gray wool uniforms and fight it out. We certainly could choose those things. But that's not what God has chosen for us. And that's not why we've been chosen by God. And so consistent with this love that God has shown to us and this faithfulness, the charge throughout Philippians, throughout this entire book, has been to live as persons in real community who reflect, as we hear in chapter 3, what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And in chapter 2, to be people who have the mind of Christ. And that together, here in chapter 4, we might be of the same mind. What that looks like is outlined in a series of quick burst imperatives that show up beginning in verse 4 and go through the rest of our reading this morning. And they represent themes that we've heard throughout Philippians. We can call these the greatest hits. Paul's greatest hits in Philippians. 
The first one, rejoice in the Lord always. That's in verse 4. We see that theme throughout the Psalms. Communities that are rejoicing in the Lord and what God has accomplished, what God is up to. The great creator, the great rescuer, the one who brings people out of exile, the one who brings exodus. That they celebrate and rejoice in all seasons. And Paul here draws on that same place. And we have to remember that Paul's writing to an audience that clearly is frightened. We know that much in chapter 1, verse 28. They're frightened because they're facing opposition. And that opposition, opposition is coming from what is described in chapter 2 as a crooked and perverse generation. And the writer Paul himself is facing that same opposition as he writes here from prison. He's in that same struggle as he notes in verse 30 of chapter 1. So this isn't a greeting card. It's not an inspirational poster. No, this is instead a powerful appeal that's spoken in the face of persecution and unjust misery that's real. And the Apostle Paul here appeals to faith, as one commentator has noted. And that faith is centered and expressed in the one true Lord, not Caesar, but in Jesus Christ. And this call to rejoice isn't isolated to Philippians. Paul actually brings this up also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he tells them to rejoice. And his rejoicing draws on again on those much longer themes in Scripture, that we rejoice Whatever the weather might be, whatever the season might hold, whatever the encounter we're in. Psalmist writes in Psalm 105, Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. And that's who Paul draws on. Those are the words he draws on here. The second imperative here is let your gentleness be known to everyone. You see that in verse 5. Gentleness is one of the key characteristics of the Christian community. Or at least it should be. In fact, in 1 Timothy, we read that this is one of the qualities, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, this is one of the qualities of Christian leadership, is gentleness. And so certainly it's something that's to be modeled and seen within the community itself. In Titus chapter 3, we actually see that church itself is called to be gentle to everyone. Not to just some people, not just to a few of the crowds or the ones that look like us, but to be gentle to everyone. And what does that all mean? Well, this word here of gentleness quite simply is this, it's not insisting on every right that is due me. It's not insisting on that. It's a yielding. It's being kind and courteous. And I know this is a difficult word in the last few years, but hear it in the true understanding of the word. It's being tolerant to others and realizing and recognizing in them something that they've been endowed with by their creator that they're due dignity, and we can offer to them as a Christian community. Verse 6, we come to the words that probably are one of the most popular ones that oftentimes show up as people's life verses. It says, do not be anxious about anything. And it continues on about that anxiety where God brings peace. If God's with us, God's walking close by and is present to us, which we understand in Jesus Christ is true by the power of the Spirit that's been made possible. The fears and the anxiousness, that grip loosens. And one of the ways that Paul offers here for us as a, a, a tool to use is prayer. But how often, how often is it that prayer goes by the wayside the more that the fear barometer goes up, the more the anxiety raises 
But think about the great benefit that lays before us for the, with the God who is present to us in verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We don't go alone. We go with the ever-present God who is modeled for us what it looks like. And finally, we see in verses 8 through 9, a laundry list, if you will, of what it means to get your mind right. Again, we live in a season and a time when our minds can go all over the place. New cycles can draw us here and there and all over the place. And Paul says, don't get caught up with the bad news. Think about these things that are honorable. Live in this way. So what do we do with all this? Sometimes this stuff feels a little bit like a pep talk. You read through it, you go, all right, Paul, thanks, man. You got to go back and realize he was in prison and go, okay, it's not quite pep talk. It's something much more serious. But this last week as I was reading through the text, I was strangely drawn to an old film. Sometimes I go back to old films and old songs. But I was drawn back to the 1967 film, Cool Hand Luke. Of all the places to go. Do you know Cool Hand Luke? If you don't, what we have here is a failure to communicate. (laughs) I realize that joke only works if you know Cool Hand Luke. But there's a famous uh, line, that one, the communicate line, comes throughout the film over and over. It shows up at key critical moments uh, in the narrative. But perhaps less well remembered in the film is, is seen when Luke is returned after trying to run away. He's in prison and he's, he's part of a work detail. And he tries to flee and they catch him and they bring him back. And at that time the warden states, you run one time, you got yourself a set of chains. You run twice, you got yourself two sets. You ain't going to need no third set because you're going to get your mind right. And I mean right. Of course, the film here sets to show the epic struggle of one man trying to break the will of another. Trying to use that to quote unquote, get his mind right. The invitation extended to you and me in Jesus Christ isn't that kind of shackling. The scripture uses the metaphor of those who've been unshackled, unchained. That in Jesus Christ, the rescue that we find is one in which burdens are lifted, in which the prisoner is set free, in which those who find themselves in the direst of places, the greatest of struggle, are brought into a new sense of freedom, that those captives are released. We see all kinds of pictures of how that works and how the kingdom is working in that way. And Philippians points to one other way that we can see this, and that is the new kind of mind, a messianic mind, the mind of Jesus Christ. And so like Paul, who in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, recounts that he fought the good fight, we today, if you would be willing to hear this, are to keep our own fight alive. To fight on two fronts. The first one is this. They both start with B. A little nod to my friends in the past who always start their sermons with the same letter. The first one's from Belhar. We fight all which may threaten or hinder this unity. That's the first fight. In the midst of a nation and a world, not just our nation, but every nation, where conflict exists on all fronts, we fight for the unity 
Anything that might hinder that unity, we fight against it. And we work hard to fight against it. We recognize that we've been called together as one church by Jesus Christ, our one Lord. And so we fight, fight, fight for unity, whatever it takes. So that's the first B. The second B, I apologize in advance for the second B. Beastie Boys. We have to fight for our rights to party, right? We have to fight for that. If you're not familiar with that, that's the title of the song. You can look it up later. I apologize for the rest of the song. But we have to fight for our right to party. That we've been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Been invited to be part of a community that's been called to share in God's love and to share that love. And we have to continually be vigilant and to fight for that. Not with fist, but with faith. We're called to persevere. We're called to live with that mind and that humility that Jesus Christ showed. To have our eyes fixed towards the cross and to that author and perfecter of faith. To not to grow slack, but to continue to work day in and day out. Not that we're earning it, but that we're pursuing it. Paul's used that imagery before of running a race. And so we run harder and harder and we strain forward, knowing that what is to be achieved and what is waiting for us past that finish line is worth it. And maybe party is too soft of a word for what's coming and what we have now in Jesus Christ. But we have to fight for our right to party. Prayer makes us strong here. It strengthens us. But we're strengthened not because of the prayer itself, but because of the one to whom we pray. Knowing that God is near, that Jesus Christ is coming. And in that, we're granted peace for today, peace for the journey ahead, and peace for all time. May it be so in our generation for each one of us today and for all.